verse 14. One of the things we deal with in our faith is what to do when God has not given specific instructions or rules on something. And we have to use wisdom. Or when God has said, you can't do this, and so does that mean you also can't do that? And so these questions that we have to work through or try to answer, it's harder when we have to trust the work of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts and of the Word to be sufficient. It's much easier to live by rules, to have guidelines, even if we're not going to follow them. It's easier, we feel better if we just have them. For some reason, we feel safer. Just having them there gives the illusion that we're righteous, that we're good, that we're not lawless. Paul says in Romans, as we've been going through this great book, that those who have been justified by faith apart from works are already righteous before God in Christ. God already accepts us on account of Christ. And Paul has also told us that we are now living sacrifices to God that we might worship Him live lives of lives of worship through our vocations, our jobs, the different roles and stations we have in our lives. But what Paul began to teach in this last section of Romans in chapter 12 was preceded, don't forget, by chapter 7. That even though we've been made new creation, all that we are, all that we have, exists inside a body of death. That's what he calls this body, a body of death from which we will always need delivered until Christ finally delivers us through death or through His return. This sinful flesh will still fight with the effects not only, or or this sinful flesh we all still fight with affects not only our own beliefs and actions, but if we aren't careful to notice, it also greatly affects how we view other people and how we decide what is righteous. So, Since Christ has called us not only to freedom, but to the selfless love of our neighbors since the day of His reign has dawned, beginning with the resurrection, we must be taught by the Word, by something outside of us, more powerful than us, how to act new. Nothing of the Spirit comes naturally to the flesh. Nothing. In fact, it's just the opposite. We'll war against the Spirit in our flesh. The gospel, however, redeems us to make us into a welcoming rather than a judgmental people in order that Christ may be glorified as the Lord of our whole lives. Let me pray and we'll look at the passage. Father, I thank You for Your perfect Word, inspired, inerrant, and infallible, authoritative over all of us. I pray, God, that You would let me remember as I preach that it is authoritative over me. Please help me speak Your Word and nothing else. Please help everyone to listen. Open every ear to receive Your Word. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, this is a very important question. How does God define who is stronger or weaker in their faith? Romans 14 teaches us an extremely important, really two-part principle for life together in the family of God, the church. And the Bible says this, the freer a person, the stronger their faith is. The less free a person, the weaker their faith is. Freedom, or the lack of it, is the fruit 
of the amount or depth of faith in the finished work of Christ. That's not an insult of any kind to anyone. It means that one's confidence that Christ has set them free, even if they didn't come to that on their own through years of study, or they may not even really think of it at all, they just are like that. One's confidence that Christ has set them free will strengthen their faith. The second part of the principle is that the stronger and weaker brethren are commanded to live together in charity and humility towards one another without judgment. Now, first things first, this is an earth-shattering text because by nature, by tradition, whatever you want to call it, we have this text completely upside down in our minds. We think naturally that the one who does not live more freely is stronger in his or her faith. Because they really take their Christianity seriously. They don't even mess around. They don't even go near things that might be sinful or harmful or might be thought of as bad. They won't even be seen with people who do such things. They not only know what the Bible says, but they go above and beyond what the Bible says, above and beyond the call of duty, and they make even more guidelines as an extra step to fight temptation. And then you have all these licentious, pseudo-Christians who live with a much more relaxed attitude towards many of those things. They just don't seem to take it all as seriously. They're missing out on the fullness of their experience with God, we like to say. And to be sure, we are to flee things like sexual immorality. We are not to become drunkards. The Bible absolutely teaches these things. But it's interesting that's as far as the Bible goes. How you flee from and avoid such things appears to be a matter of conscience. And when people are afraid, when we are afraid that we will outsin God's grace, or that we are somehow in some part responsible at least a little bit to maintain our own salvation, we will become weaker and weaker in our faith over time, is what this text is telling us. After all, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the whole argument of Romans has been that we are justified by faith completely, apart from works, by the power of God, which is the gospel. It's because of the power of the gospel that this same Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of bondage. And in context, that is the law that you're not to be yoked to anymore. It's the elementary principles of the world, which is also law. You see it everywhere, all the time. The law is everywhere. Be skinnier, be healthier, be prettier, be better, be tolerant, be accepting, be this, be that, be, 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 be. That's law. It's everywhere. It's elementary to the world that we think we make people righteous by more law and more rules. When the weaker one hears Galatians 5.1, or the one whose faith is not yet confident in the finished work of Christ, or as confident, when we hear it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, we begin to get out our tape measures and draw boundaries then around freedom. So, yes, now you're free, but let's define what that means. And by the time we're done, we're not even biblical anymore. We're, 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 we've... We've added to Scripture. We've not accepted the plain wording of the text at all. And by the time we're done, we say, now freedom doesn't mean freedom. Then what does it mean? Tony, it also says not to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Right, because you could. 
That's why it's there. But the better thing, the more neighbor-loving thing, the more Christ-like thing, the more God-glorifying thing would be to serve others instead of yourselves. Notice here in verse 1 that Paul has to instruct these believers now to welcome the one who is weak in faith. Why does that need to be there? Because the weaker one's faith, the more frustrating they tend to be with. Because if they're not free, nobody else is going to be either. And so they monitor everyone else's freedom. So Paul is saying, listen, don't shut out the ones who are weaker in their faith in this regard. Don't shut them out and refuse to fellowship with them or welcome them. The weaker one will always be the one spying out other people's freedom. As in Galatians 2.11. Why when we read the Gospels do we think the Pharisees were something that only existed back then? They're always following Jesus around. And when Jesus is doing what appears to be evil to them, they jump in and try to stop him and get him to quit and try to trap him. And what do they end up doing to this omnibenevolent Savior? They murder him. People hate righteousness from Christ because it's not theirs. Welcome the one like that, Paul says. The one who can't enjoy what God has given them yet. But not to quarrel over opinions. Because that's all these types of things are. I, I don't care how tightly we hold to it. When you get outside of Scripture, it's an opinion. And it can be an informed opinion, and you may even be right, but it has no authority over the conscience of the redeemed believer. If God has not forbidden something, we don't need to put fences around what He has forbidden just in case. Because like everything else, we'll be horribly inconsistent with it and become extremely self-righteous about it. Just in case are words that live in opposition to what the Word of God has said and goes farther than what God has said. That sounds like the garden. And who really believes they're more righteous than God? Because that's what we're saying. You didn't say enough. We need more. God is faithful to provide us with what we need. He's not trying to trick us into forsaking our faith by going too far. It's not a contest. It's been won, your salvation. It's finished. You're justified. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're His. And no one can snatch you out of His hand. Jesus died on the cross so that we would be free to enjoy abundant life. We do that not by serving ourselves, but by serving others. But if in our service to others we are constantly being spied on and monitored and measured by those who refuse to live abundant life and enjoy what God has given them, it will get old. And it does get old. Let's be honest. It gets old. So those who are stronger in their faith, at least in this matter, Take God at His saving word and live freely, which is what Jesus paid for. They're going to have to welcome those who are weaker in the faith because they're frustrated to deal with and the tendency will be to shut them out. Notice, however, that welcoming them does not include letting them go on unchecked in their policing of their own and other people's freedom. The goal is to disciple them to strengthen their faith, not to leave them in their Weakness on this matter. We don't welcome the weaker one, Paul is saying, to entertain their opinions. Or let them go on trying to wrangle in others with what they think is better. We don't do that in the church. 
We don't need sin sheriffs. We have Christ crucified and risen. Crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Remember this. All the things Jesus could have said to beware of. And what does He say? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. It's always there. It infects everything. Therefore, we should not have anything to do with making rules on paper or in person that bind a believer's conscience to something the Word has not. Especially if the reasoning is, well, just in case. That's like you, Then don't put in your statement of faith that we believe the Word is infallible, sufficient, authoritative, because you just said, no, we actually don't. In, in our doctrine, we believe that, but not in practice. In practice, you've got to add to it or people will just go off the rails. We can bind a believer's conscience implicitly or we can do it explicitly. We, we, we do this, all, all kinds of denominations and churches do this. You'll put rules, for example, in a church constitution that are not biblical. They're just what is either cultural or traditional or we don't think you should do that and so let's put these rules in there. And, it's a, and at the same time saying we believe the Bible is the only rule of faith and authority. Those two things don't go together then don't say more than the Bible says. Where God puts a period, don't put a comma. You've probably heard that before. We create unbiblical categories for righteousness, and then we tend to lord them over the consciences of other redeemed believers. And then we create these unbiblical categories to evaluate each other with, like this question. Well, yes, you can do that. But should you do that? Well, I don't know. Holy Spirit, I, I, I don't know. Right? We can use wisdom, we can use Scripture. But if we start saying God said when God didn't say, we need to understand that we're in league with the devil, not the Lord. That's That question, well, you can, but should you? Does that sound familiar? Doesn't, doesn't that question, honestly, if we're being objectively honest, doesn't it sound like, did God really say... Right, you remember who said that, right? This is why we fell in the garden. Beloved, this is why we fell in the garden. We wanted a knowledge of good and evil, of, you know, of complete exhaustive knowledge that God did not intend for us to have. We're not good at making law. This is why we insist to this day, because of the old Adam still alive in us even, in our flesh, we insist on making rules that go beyond Scripture. We always want more. There's always a, 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 there's a secret to find. There's a book waiting to be written that if you read this book, then your faith will really be great. Then you'll really be a great Christian. Then you'll really be killing it for the Lord. And, and maybe it's, you know, it comes out in all kinds of forms. You have the prayer of Jabez. You have the Daniel diet. You have all these. You had, um, I mean, you have the, 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 like there was a movement called, or it's still a movement called Christian hedonism. And so if I was into that for a while. I really was. I was completely caught up in it. And so, you know, if, if you go this way, then your faith will be more genuine. Then your faith will be more real. Then you'll be a not such a loser Christian. That, that's why those books are bestsellers, because we crave more knowledge than the Word, and the Word is sufficient. Everything you need is in that book. But it doesn't address everything. It doesn't address exactly how to parent step by step. Then the first thing to do is relax about your parenting. I don't mean like become a more relaxed parent necessarily, although I certainly could. 
What I'm saying is, is that don't think that God is up there with a ruler just waiting to crack you on the knuckles as a mom or a dad. He hasn't given a step-by-step, which means He doesn't require a step-by-step. So trust the Lord. Stay on your knees. Stay in the Word for your kids. Love them. Do the best that you can with the time that you have and be at peace. Don't go farther than the Word goes. Don't impose burdens on yourselves that nobody before you has been able to bear. We, we just, we crave more. We always think there's something missing and we don't realize we also naturally think that about our God and His Word. God did not create us to discern the difference subjectively between good and evil, but to take Him at His Word about what was good and what was evil. Everything God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 was perfectly sufficient for them to live on immortally in the garden and produce and multiply and be fruitful across the face of the earth. They needed nothing but don't eat that tree. Be fruitful and multiply. That's all they needed and they would have been fine. We would have been fine. But no. What did, she, what did Eve do when she's tempted? She, she's, but did all, notice how Satan changes. That, that's very subtly changes. Uh, are, did God really say you can't have this fruit? And Eve says, oh, He said, not only can we not eat it, we can't touch it either. God didn't say that. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. Now, you could imply that if you shouldn't eat it, you shouldn't touch it. But Eve's thinking that she couldn't touch it didn't keep her from sinning, did it? No. It doesn't. Our knowledge is insufficient. Question what you think you know. Question what you are certain that you know. But we still think we can do this. We, we can't help but think we're more righteous than God sometimes, even though we would never say it that way. And we have to add on to what He said because... If God really wanted us to keep, really wanted to keep us from sin, He didn't really go far enough. So maybe it's like a challenge for the the real Christians to like like see if you can crack the secret code of the Bible and find out the way to to, to finally get past your struggle with habitual sins and your your bad attitude. See if you can just crack the code of that. When in reality, you should just be pressing into Christ, confessing your sins every day, like Jesus implied explicitly in the Lord's Prayer that you're going to need forgiveness. Every day, bank on that. You're not setting yourself up for failure. You're submitting yourself to God's authority over you. I mean, if, if, if the, what is it? If, if the religious right would have been successful, we wouldn't be here right now in the situation we're in. Like, we should just listen to God. The more rules I impose on you, the more your transgressions will increase. We need a Savior. We don't need a book to help us. Which is not what the Bible is. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. This is the story of our Savior that is sufficient for us from creation to recreation. Right? But we know better, God. I mean, God could have been a little more clear. I mean, did God really say... Right again, isn't it funny that when people are going on and on about the need for good works, they're not usually talking about how we really need to be out there killing it, loving and serving our neighbors. Where's We need more good works. We need more selfless service to our neighbors. No, it's usually you need to stop watching HBO or something like that. That's what we mean by good works. Listen to Paul here as he defines the, 
the one who is weaker in their faith in this regard for us and our responsibility to them as the church. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, it's possible that Paul is referring to Christians who refrained from meat because it had been offered to idols, offered to idols before it was sold to the public, which is the issue in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Or he could be referring to how Hellenistic, like these Greek ascetic practices, which included a very strict vegetarianism, might have infiltrated the church in Rome. But given the context and the issues Paul has been dealing with in the churches there, he's most likely speaking still mainly about the Jewish Christians that were among the church in Rome. He's been addressing issues with them all throughout the letter here. There were differences of conviction regarding what the people of God were allowed to eat that came from Jewish customs from the Old Covenant. That would have been very hard to let go of. Let's be honest. It would have been very hard. Uh, remember Peter. Even in the vision from heaven. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. It still, it still hadn't taken by the time Galatians is being written. He, he really had a hard time getting past those Old Covenant regulations. So, again, welcoming merciful, being patient with one another. So among these Christians in Rome, you have those who eat whatever they want, regardless of where it comes from, regardless of where they are when they eat it, and others who refrain from it because their faith in Christ's work as the Savior isn't strong enough. It's not there yet. Again, it doesn't mean they're sub-Christian or dumb or not as good as as the stronger. That's not the categories Paul is arguing in. They just can't do this. So what is the right thing to do? Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. Notice the specifics there. Notice how he changes the descriptors in that verse. The tendency of the one stronger in their faith in this regard will be to despise the ones who are weaker. You know, that they, they can't enjoy things. They get on my nerves, all this. They, they won't rest, but they won't let me rest either. So it's easy to become Pharisaical about not being a Pharisee. You're just another kind of Pharisee, right? If we're just looking down on the weaker brother for not being as strong as we think we are. But Paul says, don't despise the one who abstains from eating anything like you do freely. The tendency for you will be that the weaker brethren will be to despise the stronger ones because They act so freely, but they're your family. Then he says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on him who eats. That's different than despise. For, because God has welcomed him. Do you see the subtle differences there? What is the tendency of the weaker one in faith? To pass judgment on those who are stronger and therefore feel like they can eat anything, even if meat's been sacrificed to idols in their context. He says to those weaker in faith, do not pass judgment on the one who is freer than you are. For God has welcomed him. That's why they despise the ones that are free because they think you're not a part of God's family. Look at what you do. You eat that meat. You drink that drink that those people do. What's wrong with you? And so they're passing judgment. They're saying, God, you're not a Christian. And Paul says, don't pass judgment on them. God has welcomed them. Why are you not being welcoming to them. Those who are weak and pass judgment on those who are strong enough in their faith to be free have to be careful to remember that they're passing judgment on someone that God has embraced and welcomed and unashamedly calls His own. 
Legalism will kill the church. It'll kill it. it now, it looks, makes everyone look more put together, look more clean, look more righteous, but usually it just creates a church full of hypocrites, which is what Jesus said. Letting the leaven of the Pharisees run wild in your church or among a group will do. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. And they, they, they were loaded up with rules. You wouldn't have found more morally upstanding people in Israel than the Pharisees. Bottom line. And Jesus says, you're, you're, you cleanse the outside of the cup, but the inside you're full of dead man's bones. You're like whitewashed tombs, he calls them. Rules make us forget that we're sinners. They do. It's not, look, it's not that God gives no commands to New Covenant Christians. He does all through the New Testament. But they're not making us righteous. They're not approving us unto God or commending us to Him. We need to remember Romans 7, right in the middle of the book, basically. Jesus has addressed the sin problem once and for all. He doesn't need anybody to back clean up. Everybody made it home. All that receive the gospel. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Now he's speaking exclusively to those who have passed judgment on others for enjoying what they cannot or will not. It's nobody's job in the church to spy out the service to God of another. And we pastors are not the exception to Jesus' rule in Matthew 13.30. To not, he specifically says, do not try to pull up the tares along or pull the tares out of the church or out of the people of God. Because if you do, you're going to pull up wheat also. Because your conscience and your judgment is not pure enough and objective enough to tell the difference. So don't get it in your head that you're a detective for me. Because if you keep wrangling on people to make sure and pester and pester, you need to rededicate your life. You need to be more committed, more committed, more committed. You're not serious enough. You're going to end up making people that are wheat doubt and they'll walk away. Why don't we just listen to Jesus? Just listen to Jesus. In fact, the very reason Jesus gives that warning is related to this text in Romans 14, isn't it? We see it right here. If we take it on ourselves to decide who is really serious about the Lord or serious enough, which is always a subjective standard that we've created. If you're doing this and that, then you're serious. If you're not, then we know you're not serious. If we take it on ourselves to know who's really serious about the Lord and has genuine faith, which again is always based on works, we will not only remove tares, we'll accidentally pull up wheat too. Why? Because we aren't Jesus. Remember the garden. We weren't created for that type of objective insight. Let God do that. Don't worry about how someone else is serving the Master, whether it's weakly or strongly. In the middle of verse 4, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What a verse. What a statement here. I love the last line. It really sums up the issue. Each of us stands or falls on our own before God. God is the only just judge there is. But notice here, the point is not to terrify us about judgment, but to comfort us. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Beloved, that's the gospel. Say you are weak and just can't let yourself do certain things that God has not forbidden. And listen, nobody should be doing things God has forbidden. But that's not what's at issue here. 
the Lord is able to make you stand weaker brother or sister, you will be just fine. Do not be afraid. Jesus has you. Believe it. Enjoy it. And to the one who is strong and able to enjoy more of their freedom, you too will be upheld even if you go too far by accident. Or on purpose. The Lord is able to make you stand. Jesus has you. That's the message here. I've got you. Trust me. Love your neighbor. All the children of God will stand by the power of the gospel. Both the weak and the strong. They'll stand. No one needs to judge anyone else's quality as a believer. Paul goes on here explaining the issue further in verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's the Bible's answer here to matters of what we call conviction. You worry about you or don't worry about you at all since Jesus has you. Just be convinced in your own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. I dated a girl, not Christy, for a while whose dad uh, was very far out on the fringes of like everything. I, I, I have respect for him because he, you know, helped me get into the Word and helped me argue what I thought I knew and all that. But like they didn't celebrate Christmas. They didn't celebrate any holidays, not Easter. They called it Ishtar. I know that. I, I know the argument. But Christmas, like he teases you, like like you're celebrating Baal Mass, and you know he's asking, you know, has the heathen brought the tree in out of the field and decorated it yet? Yeah, I mean that's what Leviticus was talking about, your Christmas tree. But anyway, it's not what it's talking about. Just in case you didn't know, I was joking. But you cannot notice. You cannot make a rule for yourself and be consistent, like be pure about it. You're going to look down on people that don't keep it. So it's okay to have convictions and things that where you think, okay, I can't go there. That's fine. Be convinced in your own mind. But don't you? Why is it so hard for us to hold our convictions without judging others by them? It's almost impossible. Like it's very hard to say objectively, this is. I think this is wrong. And then when somebody else does it, say, well, it's okay if they do it. That's how you have abortion on demand, right? I personally wouldn't kill a baby, but you can pull a baby apart in the womb. No problem with that. You can suck it out of a vacuum. And it threw a vacuum out of the womb, but I would never do that. Well, then you're not anti-anything, right? So we're not good at this. We're not good at like creating these, just, just hold to those loosely. Admit that's what they are. This is for me. It's unclear, but likely the eating of meat had to do with things, uh, doing, doing so formally, like at holidays or special feasts, not just kind of buying it in the market apparently which would just be fuel to the fire for the weaker one who doesn't yet fully embrace the sufficiency of Christ. Because to eat that meat or eat that thing, you're going to have to do it at a pagan festival, right? So like how some of us can be about Halloween. Don't eat the devil's candy, right? Well, it's it's really just candy. But for some folks, it isn't just candy. Here, it makes no difference. We live to the Lord. Beloved, both the one who celebrates a holiday and the one who doesn't. The one who eats at feasts and the one who doesn't. Both honor the Lord and give thanks to the Lord, ideally when they're fully convinced in their own mind that they're they're doing so. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's God's standard. So, beloved, wherever you land on issues of Christian liberty, just land there. Know why you abstain or why you eat. Don't just wing it. Don't just take somebody's word for it. Or take tradition's word for it. You do the work of knowing why you have the convictions you do. Every Christian has the Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. There's no need to fear. You you see how we second-guess the sufficiency of God's Word in verses like like this one, like verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And we would say... You mean leave it up to each individual person's conscience? Like, won't people will just go off the rails? That's way too dangerous. You, you can't just let each individual Christian be deciding when God has not said this is forbidden. You can't just let people on their own decide what they should do and be fully convinced in their own mind. They'll go off the rails. You do realize that you're saying to God, you got that one wrong. No, the Lord is able to make us stand. Trust His Word. Let us all mind our own business, and it will be okay. Verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is the foundation of the whole text. This is why he wrote it, so that they would know and believe. Verse 7 and 8 here. The Lord is able to make us stand because we are His. None of us is on our own here trying to accomplish our own salvation. Right? Not all of us are are put at different places on the track with a little push to get to the finish line. We we live before Him. We're His. it's, It's finished. None of us lives to ourselves. None of us is dependent on ourselves for our own salvation. We don't conduct our lives like we make the rules. Or we determine our destiny. We, we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 3. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6.20 We don't own anything. We aren't the kings of anything. Especially not ourselves. Jesus also lays claim to our convictions. They better be coming from Him. But, or and, none of us dies to Himself either. We aren't left alone when we die. We will not be abandoned at judgment. We don't just pass out of existence either or enter some transcendental plane. We die to the Lord. The minute we breathe our last breath and our heart beats for the last time, we are His. Safe. That's what Christ does to a sinner. We die to the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And by the blood and righteousness of Christ, we will stand in death and not be condemned. Everyone then should just relax and get down to the business of welcoming one another and enjoying what Christ has done for us. Verse 9. For to this end, that our lives and deaths would belong to God, Christ died and lived again that He might be both the Lord of the dead and of the living. This is pure gospel. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that we would be okay. So that He would be the Lord of our lives, showering us with His grace in the gospel, justifying us freely before God that we might live in service and love for our neighbors since we're free rather than for ourselves. And 
so that when we die, he would not lose us to condemnation, but so he might bring us to life where we will reign with him on the earth forever. Jesus died so we don't have to be consumed with our own behavior or the behavior of others. He has us now and he will have us in death. You are safe. Jesus has you. Live. Love your neighbors. Be free. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Remember who that matches to earlier in the text. Who passes judgment, who despises, tends to, right? He's talking to both the weak and the strong now then, about how we both tend to sin in this regard toward one another. For, so here's, why would you judge? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God, not the judgment seat of each other. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Isaiah 45, 23, Philippians 2. So then in verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. No one else. We will not give an account of anyone but ourselves to God and we will not give it to anyone but God. That should inform the now of our lives. Not only does it affect our faith, it affects our ability to love and serve one another with charity and humility and patience and all these things. We've got to believe the Word. We've got to take God at His Word. Verse 12 should be sufficient enough reason to welcome one another. Those of us who are stronger in our faith, at least to the extent that we aren't scared to do what God hasn't forbidden, we should welcome and maintain fellowship with those who are not. This is the, uh, those who are not. The strong must not judge the weak as though they're subpar Christians. They are not. And those of us who are weaker in our faith, at least to the extent that we're afraid of freedom, should welcome and maintain fellowship and not pass judgment on those that are stronger in this regard. At the end of the day, because each of us will give an account of ourselves to God, not of anyone else, and nor will anyone else be judging us, only God. So if we just each would set our own compass Godward, we would be okay. Jesus lived and died and rose again for us that we would be the most welcoming people in the world. All our debt has been paid. All our sin forgiven. All the righteousness we need before God granted to us freely as a gift. We are completely free to love and serve our neighbors with nothing to focus on or nothing to lose but this tent. Our heavenly bodies. Now, as we head towards the closing here, somebody could be asking at this moment, well, what about being a stumbling block, though? Right, I hear what you're saying about freedom and all this, and I understand, but after all, that's what Paul gets into in that situation in 1 Corinthians 8, and eating meat sacrificed to idols, and he does. We aren't supposed to be stumbling blocks. We aren't supposed to use our liberty to cover up our vices or anything like this. That's absolutely correct. To that latter point there about not using our liberty to cover up for our vices, absolutely. Right? Don't use the fact that you're free in Christ as an excuse to indulge what you're sinfully still enslaved to. Call that what it is. If it's sin, call it sin. Right? Don't, don't be like, I'm free, it's not sin. It's sin. You're free, but it's sin. Deal with it before God in Christ. Don't ever become like content with it. We, we live lives of repentance. That's what we do. What God has forbidden will always be sin. Freedom doesn't undo what sin is. Our freedom is not for demeaning Christ or ignoring our neighbors and serving ourselves. Christ has 
set us free to be free from anything that can kill us, from the bottle to the law. We've been set free from all of it. Now, to this issue of being a stumbling block, I do think we need to be mindful of something first. What would it mean to stumble in scriptural context? If you were a stumbling block, what, what are you doing to somebody? It would mean you're, you're threatening someone's faith. You're making them doubt. It has nothing to do with giving someone the right to judge one another. You don't use that as ammo. Because the fact that they're free according to chapter 14 is not causing you to stumble in your faith. It's causing you to pass judgment on them. Stumbling block does not equal passing judgment. Stumbling block is, I'm doing this to hurt your faith. I'm tripping you up. The stronger one doesn't trip up the weaker one by being stronger. If by stumbling block you mean you're going to make me judge you for sinning, you're wrong about what a stumbling block is. You should be free. You should not be judging others. God's word doesn't give God's word doesn't give any of us the right to put a chain on somebody else's freedom. If seeing someone do something that makes you judgmental of them, that's a you problem. We are the servants of God. We're not the servants of each other's consciences. But even more importantly, we do need to consider this. Stumbling blocks can work both ways. We don't talk about that. Right? We are free in Christ to drink alcohol. Getting drunk is a sin. Getting drunk is forbidden by the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that since drunkenness is a sin, however, drinking is too. Just like, nobody talks about this, it doesn't say that since gluttony is a sin, potlucks are a sin also. Right? We don't, we don't talk about gluttony. Right? Because we might actually struggle with that one. Or pop blessing if you're superstitious and not biblical. Right? Now, for pastors and elders, it goes even further. It does. I can't be addicted to much wine at all in 1 Timothy 3. My conscience is bound to the Word of God. It's not bound to any other document. Now, because I'm free to do that, here's the issue. Would I knowingly do that in front of or around a brother or sister that does not believe we're free to do that? No, I wouldn't. Not on purpose. Absolutely not. Let's say I think I'm free to do something and you don't. And it is a genuine matter of conscience. If I'm with you, I won't do that thing. That would just be unloving and unkind because you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be... You know, I, I, I and, and really, if we wanted to be thorough with the text, I'm giving you the opportunity to sin by judging me, and that's unloving. I would put my liberty in my pocket there to serve the brother or sister, and it should be vice versa all the time. We just give ourselves away. We forego our rights to freedom when it's more important that we love in that situation. Absolutely. Right? It's sinful to flaunt our freedom in the face of a weaker brother or sister in Christ. No question. Now, if I'm not doing so knowingly or on purpose, then to shove it in their face, then that's something different. But isn't it a little funny that nobody ever worries about the slippery slope into being a Pharisee? The slippery slope into being 
too self-righteous and reliant on your own goodness. The, the cliff is a lot sharper over there. Because we don't think it's a cliff. Like, it's a slippery slope if you do this or that, because it might lead to that. It might lead to this. Be careful with your freedom. Fair enough. But we must also be careful with our self-righteousness. The fact of the matter is, any insistence to label sin what God has not labeled sin is the slippery slope into legalism and Phariseeism. You're going to become a Pharisee if you keep piling up rules that God didn't and convictions that God doesn't. And you're going to end up believing you're more righteous than other people are because you abstain from what they indulge in, just like Romans 14 is speaking of. The gospel of Jesus Christ actually saves sinners, though. It actually works. When a person receives the gospel, they're saved. They got it. They got all of Jesus. They got all His blood to cover their sins, all His righteousness to justify them as righteous. All of it. Done. They're His child. They're adopted. It's over. Either we believe that or we don't. And if we don't, we cannot say we believe in justification by faith alone, which is the reason why Protestant churches exist. Don't worry. that You don't need to add anything onto that. We don't need to plus that. It's enough. Again, either we believe it or we don't. The work He did actually works to bring salvation to somebody. No one needs to worry that the cross is insufficient. Nor does anyone need to think that if they can't always do whatever they want, that they're somehow missing out. You're not. If you have to put your freedom in check every day for the rest of your life, you're fine. So be it. Every occasion to be free or to abstain is an occasion to glorify God, enjoy His salvation, serve one another as we've been called to do. So may our hearts soften towards one another, that they may be constant, we may be constant conduits of God's grace for us in Christ. To quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. Alright? Trust Jesus. He's sufficient for you. He's sufficient for you. And He's sufficient for your brother and for your sister. Would you stand, please?